How's everybody doing? <laughs> Good. All right. Cool. Cool. Um, hey, thank you guys for being here. I just want to tell you, I always tell the Saturday service, uh, I appreciate them coming out because it's a Saturday night and they take a chunk out of their weekend, uh, you know, possibly their only day off and, and come. I, I want to tell you to do the same. I believe church is extremely important and I'm glad you're here and I think you should be here. Uh, but I still just want to tell you I, just that we appreciate you. Thank you for putting up with a horrible parking lot. And um, I'll talk about that later. I get stressed out about the dumbest things. And I was telling them last night, like every time like, I come to church and people are here, I'm like, wow, I don't know if I'd keep coming to this church without, the, you know, without a legitimate parking lot. But I appreciate you guys doing so. So um, get stressed out about that stuff. But anyways, if you've not been with us, we're in the book of Daniel. And we've been working through it for a long time. If you haven't been with us, it's fine. It's easy just to kind of jump right in. Where we are this week, we're in chapter 9, and we did half of chapter 9 last week. And essentially all chapter 9, well, all that we covered last week, about 70% of the whole chapter and almost all of what we covered last week is a prayer. It's a pretty simple prayer. It's a good prayer to model, but Daniel, who's probably in his 80s at the time, and he's, he's going back and he's writing kind of his memoirs. So the last couple of chapters, he's been talking about things that have happened in the past, visions he's seen, or, or different events that had taken place during all these different regime changes. So where we, where we started off last week, in chapter 9, the Babylonian Empire, which is the empire that came in and stole Daniel away from his family and, and, and conquered his, his hometown, that empire was just conquered recently by the Persian Empire. And in the middle of that, the reason why Daniel's praying so much in chapter 9 is he's asking God, God, not only have we been in captivity for a long time, the city where I'm from is in total ruins, the temple is destroyed, um, there's no, I don't see any way that our people are going to get back to where they're supposed to be. Your reputation is blemished, not because God had done anything wrong, but the people of God have given up on you, so the rest of the world has kind of turned their back on you as well. And he was upset. He was distraught. And so he's praying this prayer. He's face down on the floor. He's weeping. And again, he's basically talking about three things, like what are you going to do about our city? What are you going to do about your people? And what are you going to do about your reputation to the world around us? What are you going to do, God? Now, where we're going to pick it up in chapter 9 this week is he's going to get his answer. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there. I'm going to probably thoroughly confuse some of you today because I was thoroughly confused this whole week. But I have a chart at the end that I made, more so for me than you, that helps understand or helps one understand what this second half of Daniel is about. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of metaphors. It's very, very deep. It's not a lot. We're not reading a lot, seven or eight verses. It's not a lot that we're going to cover today, but it's very, very dense material, okay? But what we're going to talk about is this. So Daniel's asking questions in the first part of chapter 9. In the second part of chapter 9, he gets the plan. God reveals his plan to Daniel. Now, the question is, for us, the reader, is now we know the future events that are going to take place. How do we respond to that? What do we do with that? If we know what's coming, how do we, how do we as Christians respond with our lives? How do we respond with the people around us? What do we do? Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about today. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Is everything I'm going to say in it? Um, if you didn't get a notes handout, it's on version, the fancy app on your phone. And um, you can click on that and all the notes are there. And again, I'm going to do my best, guys. If it gets a little crazy, just bear with me. At the end, I, I think I'll be able to wrap it up okay, and it'll make sense, all right? Everyone's doing okay? Everyone's good, right? 
You like how in Tennessee, how winter hits like really, really late, and uh, yeah, it's just strange, right? So it was cold out there this morning. I walked out, and I was like, what the heck is this? But um, okay, all right, well, I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this. I'm rambling now, so that's when I know it's time to get into the Word. So uh, Lord Jesus, God, I love you. God, I just pray that you keep your hand on us this morning, Lord. For everyone in this room, God, regardless of what brought them in here this morning, whether they wanted to be here or not, you've brought them here for a reason. They're here, God to hear something. And so I pray, Lord, that you open up every ear, open up every eye, help us to understand. God, help me, Lord, to teach your word accurately in a way that makes sense, in a way that applies to us today. Lord Jesus, we want to pray for every church in our city. We want to pray for the bigger churches, the smaller churches, and and, and regardless of the methods that they use and the style that they use, God, as long as they are teaching that you are the one true king and the savior, Lord, we're on their team, God, and we want to walk arm in arm with them. Lord, we love you. Just be gracious with us today. Speak to us today. It's in your heavenly name, your holy name that we pray, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read from chapter 9, starting in verse 20 of the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament, right after the book of Ezekiel, okay? Here we go. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before Yahweh, my God, Concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation, Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, your prayer, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Okay, so like I said, when we pick up in this part in chapter 9, imagine Daniel face down on the ground, right? His heart is crushed. He's been confessing personal sins. He's been confessing the sins of his people. And he's been praying probably for hours and hours and hours. We know it was probably hours and hours and hours because he had started sometime during the morning and now it was the time of the evening sacrifice or the evening offering, which would have been about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, okay? So as he's praying, and he's been praying for a long time and his heart's broken, he's interrupted by an angel, a very famous angel in the Bible, though he's only mentioned three times, is a guy named Gabriel. And so Gabriel shows up. This is the second mention of Gabriel in the Bible. And apparently he left heaven when this prayer started and he, he showed up after hours of Daniel praying. Now, there's some weird commentaries, like one of the ones I was reading this week, these weird commentaries where this guy's like, so what is the distance between heaven and earth? Stuff like that is kind of silly, right? We don't know. It's, it's a spiritual thing. And so anyway, so All we know is that Gabriel left when the prayer started with an answer, and he showed up and he delivered that answer to Daniel. Dan, that's Daniel, okay? And so the time of the evening sacrifice was over. Now look, Daniel's hometown, where the temple was, where they made the sacrifice to God, the proper sacrifice, had been destroyed 50-some-odd years ago. So no one, none of the Jews, had made proper sacrifice in the temple for decades and decades and decades. What's interesting about that, now listen, see how this applies to us. Daniel's place of worship had been removed, but Daniel still observed the times of worship. He still observed the different sacrifices and the offerings to the best of his ability. And what that shows us, or I guess what question 
it poses to us is it's inevitable that there will come a time when we will not have the luxury of meeting like this. And so what are we going to do, the question is, what are we going to do as a church, the people of God, when we don't have the luxury to meet in the corporate gathering that we have right here, right? So we have to think, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to do home groups? Are we going to do something over the internet? Or how are we going to work that out? And this church, this church is actually starting to prepare for that already. We'll talk about that at the vision service um, a little bit next week, what we're going to do to kind of prepare if those times come. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions. If the lights and the sound and the band and all the nice comforts that we kind of take for granted sometimes, if those were removed from us, would we still observe times of worship? Would we still observe times of studying the Word of God and gathering together corporately? Would we still do that? And so Daniel receives an answer, right? A revelation. And one has to, one has to ask sometimes, why Daniel? Why does Daniel keep being the one that receives these visions from God and, and these dreams from God and the ability to interpret these things? Why him? Well, what it says is Gabriel's quick response to Daniel came because Daniel was treasured by God doesn't mean that we're not treasured by God, but what that implies is that Daniel had a deep, intimate relationship with the Lord. And because he had a deep, intimate relationship with the Lord, heaven was quick to respond. Now, there are a couple of cases in the Bible, and they are the exception to the rule. There's a few cases of God answering people's prayers that didn't have a relationship with him. There's a couple of those. I know those are in there, but that is not the norm. We see more often through the Bible, and I listed just a couple in the New Testament, that God responds to people that have a relationship with him. God responds to people that, 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 um, that are righteous, that live holy, that speak to him on a regular basis. And there's this misconception with a lot of people that God always hears our prayers. And in fact, there are multiple scriptures that say God does not always hear our prayers. That if we have an offense towards someone else, or if we have unrepentant sin, that there are times that God says, wait, before you and I talk, you need to clear things up with your brother. You need to clear things up with your sister. You need to take care of some of these unrepentant sins. And there are cases of that. So we have this misconception sometimes about prayer lives. And so what Daniel is asking for, <clears throat> what he's praying for, is he wants clarity, God, how are we going to get back to where we were? And he wants hope that that's going to take place. And so Daniel's prayer was to gain clarity about how is God going to restore his people? How is God going to restore his name, his reputation? And how long are the people of God going to have to suffer under pagan nations, nations that don't believe the same way they do? And so what Gabriel came to give him was understanding. He came to give him knowledge. He came to give him an answer. Now, in, in, in churches, and I don't know if, if many of you came from this kind of churches, especially churches that entertain the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, we have a tendency to pray for certain gifts of the Spirit. I came from a denomination where everyone prayed for the gift of speaking in tongues. Nothing wrong with that gift, but people like that gift because you can hear it, you can see people doing it. Let's just be honest, it's kind of weird and freaky, right? And we like that stuff. And so we're kind of drawn to that and so we pray for certain gifts, but in our day and age, and I saw this in Daniel, and I, I, I want to I kind of impart it to myself, is that if we need to pray for one gift right now from God, I believe the church needs to pray for wisdom. Amen. In these days and age, in this, this day and age, I'm still waking up, guys. In this day and age, 
We need to pray more and more that God gives us discernment, that he gives us the gift of knowledge and wisdom, because right now there's so much confusion. There's so much confusion amongst Christianity. There's so much confusion amongst churches and how to interpret the scripture that we need the wisdom of God, and we need it supernaturally. We need God to give us wisdom and knowledge, but the only way to receive wisdom and knowledge is we must live holy and we must be humble. God's not going to give gifts to people that don't know how to wield those gifts. He's not going to give gifts to people that are going to take those for granted. The Bible says he's not going to cast pearls before swine, so he's not going to do that. So we have to live humbly. So here's the thing. You see in Daniel, or at least I have seen in Daniel, guys, just before anyone gets their feelings hurt, most of the teaching today is is I'm teaching to myself. And one of the things I learned is that Daniel has challenged me to link my faith and my intelligence, that the holy word of God and being a Christian should push us into greater knowledge, into greater intelligence, not push us away from it. And so we should be asking for knowledge. We should be asking for wisdom. We should be asking for discernment. And so we are responsible to work towards a greater understanding of our faith. You as an individual, I'm glad you come to church. I believe people need a pastor. I believe people need a church. I believe you need small group leaders and mentors, all that stuff. But ultimately, you and I as individuals are responsible for understanding our faith, why we believe what we believe, where did it come from, why do we have these 66 books of the Bible. We need to dig into those things, okay? Next part. I'm going to read one verse, but it's a very, very dense one. Okay, now here's the interpreta- or here's the, uh, uh, the message okay, that he's going to give Daniel, the angel. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Six things are mentioned right now. We're going to break down those six things. Now, for the rest of the time that you and I are going to talk this morning, the idea of 70 weeks is extremely important and, quite frankly, a little confusing. What this is, is this is 70 heptads. Never heard that phrase till last week, but here we go, right? 70 heptads, which means a group of seven. And the weeks here represent years. So there's, when it says a week, that means seven years, okay? So right here, we see that there are 70 weeks, 70 groups of seven years, 490 years, okay? You guys didn't know you were going to become a cryptologist this morning, but here we go. So there's 70 groups of seven, Now, all throughout the book of Revelation, all throughout the book of Daniel, and there's other books of the Bible, this happens as well, there are numbers that are kind of symbolic of different ideas. And the number seven is supposed to be the number of perfection. The number 10 is supposed to be what they call a round number, which is a perfect number as well. And so these numbers are used throughout the scripture to show completion or accomplishment. And so what this combination of multiple perfect numbers, seven times seven times 10, 490. This shows that in this 490 year span, the ultimate accomplishment is gonna take place. And I'm gonna show you what that is here in a second, okay? Now that's gonna happen in six different things. And I'm gonna break down those six. The first one is it says, is it says in this 490 years that rebellion will come to an end. 
This represents the coming of the kingdom of God, okay? This hasn't happened yet, or at least we hope it hasn't, or we're in deep trouble. This hasn't happened yet, that the kingdom of God comes, and he sets up shop for a thousand years on earth, okay? If you haven't been with us, just a quick recap of what that is. If you fast forward to the end of the Bible, chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation, there's going to be this evil leader that rises up. Jesus is going to come back, destroy all the evil on planet earth. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and there will be no rebellion, okay? Everyone will live in harmony. That's what that's talking about. The second phrase is this, that he will put a stop to sin, This is not the forgiveness of sin that happened through the cross. This is the restraint of sin. This is also talking about the millennial reign, the the, the thousand years, that in that time, no one will sin. There'll be no rebellion. There will be no sin, okay? This is obviously not talking about Jesus's crucifixion because sin, obviously, is still alive and well on planet earth, okay? The third thing it says is it talks about iniquity, Now, iniquity and sin are a little bit different. Sin is an event. Iniquity is a lifestyle. And so another thing that's going to happen in this 490 years that the angel is telling Daniel about is it points to the crucifixion of of Jesus Christ. And after the crucifixion, people that follow God will have the ability to kill their lifestyle of sin. Doesn't mean that they won't mess up every once in a while, But there's a difference between sinning and living in iniquity, living in a sexual, uh, immoral lifestyle, or living in a a corrupt lifestyle, or living in um, being being a, a, a pathological liar, or whatever the case may be, living a lifestyle of immorality. And so Daniel had been asking the question, How are we going to find forgiveness? How are our people as a whole going to be restored? And Gabriel is answering that in the cross in Jesus' second coming are basically the big answers that he gives for how this is going to take place. Now, if you pause for a second, we've hit in three of the six, right? If you pause for a second, the first three seem kind of, kind of negative, right? It's dealing with sin. It's dealing with iniquity. It's dealing with rebellion, bad things. Now, the second three, the second set of three, are going to be more positive, So once iniquity and sin and rebellion are dealt with, what's going to replace that, it says everlasting righteousness, that God will start to transform his people and write his law on their heart, like it said in Jeremiah. And this seems to be in the future as well. This isn't the individual change of people. This is whole nations being forgiven, whole nations following Jesus Christ, okay? So I don't think that's happened yet either, at least I haven't noticed it. Another thing that's going to happen in the future is that prophecy and vision will be sealed up. What that means is once sin is removed and righteousness is put in the place of sin, the teachings and the writings of the people who contributed to the Bible will be completed. It'll be done. That's not just the Old Testament prophecies. It's the New Testament prophecies, which again means that this has not taken place yet. Because the words of John, who wrote the book of Revelation, those things have not come to fulfillment yet, but they will, okay? He goes on, and the last one's the most confusing. This is the one where people argue like crazy. Is the last one says, to anoint the most holy place. Now, there's a bunch of different interpretations. Well, what does that last one mean, the sixth one mean? Some people believe this is when the Jews took back Jerusalem in about 165 A.D., The the Maccabean army came in and they took back Jerusalem. Some people believe that already happened. 
Some people believe this is when Jesus got baptized. If you know the story of Jesus, he gets dunked, he comes up, and the sky opens up, and he's kind of blessed by his father to start doing his ministry. Okay, some people think that. Some people believe this is the revelation of, of Jesus Christ to the Jews. What they mean is not just a couple of Jewish people becoming Christians, but the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, collectively kind of accepting that Christ is the Messiah. Messiah. And some people believe this is symbolic of us going to heaven, okay? The anointing of the most holy place. To, To simplify it, people argue, is the most holy place a building? Is it a person? Or is it a group of people? What a lot of people have come to the conclusion of is that it's talking about a temple. This doesn't simplify it too much because we're not sure what temple means, okay? But some people believe that in this thousand years, all right, Jesus comes back, sets up shop, and that in that thousand years, a temple will be built. Now, if you're Jewish or if you have a very classical approach to Daniel, a lot of people are looking for a literal temple to be built, that there will be this temple to be built. It talks about it in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 44. And there's some individuals that have way too much time on their hands that reconstruct the temple in Ezekiel. And there's like one day, if you see this, you know, but some people think it's a literal temple. I would argue, this is where I lean, that it's not talking about a literal building, that there's not going to be this huge mega church built in the millennial kingdom where we all worship together. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Because in the light of the New Testament, the temple is not a building, the temple is a people, a person. So what I think is going to happen, just my opinion, if you disagree, it's fine, we're we're, we're cool. Um, I think that in that thousand-year reign, God is going to build back His people. He's going to build back His people. But the point is not, is the temple literal or figurative? The point is not exactly what this line of the Bible means. It's not really the point. The point of what we just read so far, that one verse, verse 24, is that Daniel needed to know from God, and and Gabriel delivers this answer, about the Jewish people in Daniel's day. The first one was this, that within this thousand, uh, without this, I'm sorry, within this 490 years, that God will send a savior. That's a big one. So Daniel, you're worried about your people being saved and restored. God's gonna send someone, okay? He knows that. The second thing is, the one that, that God will send, the savior, Jesus, will give us the means to rid ourselves of sin. So he will die on the cross and he will give us the means to be righteous in front of God, okay? The third thing that he wanted to pick up was that after Jesus comes back a second time, after he returns a second time, right, the last time, that he would fulfill everything the Bible says. Not just what the Old Testament says, but what the New Testament says. And not just that, that in that thousand thousand years that he's on earth, Jesus that he will set up his temple again. He will restore his temple again, which again, I believe is his people. Now, here's something we tend to do because we're people and we like to argue, is we seem to overcomplicate the Bible sometimes. Now, there's a lot of dense stuff. We're talking about it today. There's a lot of dense stuff. There's a lot of complicated stuff. There's a lot of stuff, quite frankly, that's fun to kind of debate about, right? If you get into certain parts of the Bible, it's fun to talk about what does this mean in Daniel? What does that mean in Revelation? What did Paul mean in certain parts of Romans? You know, and some of those things are are fun to kind of argue about, but I think we need to step back and make sure that we major on the majors, which is something we say in this church a lot, and minor on the minors. Because if we're not careful, we get caught in the semantics of things and we kind of lose focus of the big deal. 
Like when people argue about denominations and the difference between denominations and the difference between, you know, how people take communion and things like that. And we're so busy arguing with each other that we forget to tell people about Jesus. The whole point of why we're here. And so we forget the main objective. And that's just silly, guys. And it's a waste of time. And so regardless of the minor differences, when I say minor differences, guys, if you're sitting next to a Calvinist and you're an Arminianist, it's not a big deal. If you don't know who those two guys are, also not a big deal. Okay? As long as you're pursuing Jesus with all your mind, body, and soul, like, you're going to be okay. You don't have to worry about the semantics. So, if we can just get on the same page about a couple of things. One, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Two, that He's coming back. And three, we need to be ready. If we can just agree on those things, we'll be okay. All right? Moving on. Now we get into more dense stuff. Know and understand this. Now, when I read that this week, I'm like, that's ironic because I'm really struggling right now. I, again, guys, I got it eventually, but you'll see why I got confused here in a second. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming prince, that's not the same as the Messiah. Notice that's a lowercase p. The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war and desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. It's okay to be confused, guys. I was too. So, he says this. This part's not that confusing. He says there will be a decree. Remember, the angel is talking to Daniel. He says, your temple's going to be, re be rebuilt. Your city's going to be rebuilt. There's going to come a time when someone will make a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That actually happened. In about 445 BC, a guy named Artaxerxes told a guy named Nehemiah that you can go rebuild Jerusalem. Okay? Now, if you go back about, it's in my Bible, about 700 pages or so, back a couple of books of the Bible, there's a story of Nehemiah and Ezra, a little tidbit of information. Those used to be one book of the Bible, and they split them up into two for some reason. But anyways, so if you go back and read the book of Ezra, if you go back and read the book of Nehemiah, it's about this, a lot of it. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in 52 days, and then over about 40 years or so, he rebuilt all of Jerusalem. That happened about 100 years after Daniel had died, okay? So that came to fruition. That, that wasn't uh, a, a super complicated thing. Okay, so from the building back of Jerusalem, though, the angel says, to the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, there's going to be this pretty big gap. He says it's seven weeks and then 62 weeks. If you add those things together, it's about 483 years is what it's talking about, okay? And so this gets a little confusing when we learn that the Jewish calendar is actually a little bit different than our calendar nowadays. It has a different amount of days in it. But if one takes the time to, to research 
what the angel said to Daniel, it works almost perfectly. If you look at the timeline, if you look at how it breaks down, you're kind of amazed. Wow, it unfolded just the way the angel had said it, 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 it had, okay, or that it was going to. And so it says that when Jerusalem is being rebuilt, I don't know why at first I'm like, well, why do we care if it had a plaza and a moat? And what that shows though, and it says that it was built back in difficult times, what that shows is that Nehemiah didn't just build back Jerusalem, he built it back with precision, he built it back exactly the way God wanted it to be, it had protection around it, it was built during, during very difficult times, which means there were armies that were trying to attack the Jews, a lot of people didn't want Jerusalem to be built back, but it was. And so then later on, Jerusalem is built back, and then there's a span of time And after this span of time takes place, after Jesus is born, he grows up, he becomes a minister that he is. Of course, he's the son of God and he's sharing the gospel to people, the good news. It says that he's cut off, which this simply means he's crucified, right? So after this span of time, Jerusalem is built back, the Savior comes, the Savior is murdered, the crucifixion. And then after that crucifixion, it says that another prince will come. This is not a good prince, this is a bad prince. That after the 69th week, right, the 69th group of sevens, that another prince will come and destroy Jerusalem again. So it's gonna get destroyed again. Imagine Daniel, right? It's like, yeah, it's getting built back. Ah, it's gonna get destroyed again. So he tells him, the angel tells him, someone's gonna come in and destroy it again. Now, we know historically that this also happened. About 37 or so years after Jesus died in 70 AD, the Roman Empire came in under a really happy guy named Emperor Titus, right? Most of the emperors were, you know, pretty insane, and Titus was one of them. He came in, and he totally demolished Jerusalem. He totally took it all down. And so the death of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD starts the beginning of the end. Imagine, if you will, if you're trying to formulate it in your head, that when Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem, leveled it, it's like he pushed a button on a bomb, right? Boom, it's gonna start counting down. And so there was this thing that started happening. And we know this because if you go into the book of Matthew in chapter 24 and verse seven, if you start reading there, Jesus talked about these times and he said that this is gonna be the beginning of the end. The way he said it was, is this is the beginning of birth pains. It's not the end, but it's the beginning of the end. And so the beginning of birth pains will eventually lead to the second coming of Christ. And what we need to do, Christians, is we need to recognize the difference between the end, which hasn't happened yet, that's in Revelation 19 and 20, and the beginning of the end, which happened in the first century, okay? So again, if you're trying to simplify it, because I had to in my own head, It's like a button was pushed in 70 AD and this clock has been running and it eventually will run out and it mentions that in Revelation 19 and 20. So in this time frame, okay, roughly from 70 AD to whenever, in that time frame, that's when the Antichrist will rise up. That's when the final evil leader will rise up, okay? So we're kind of in this gap period. In the last seven years, of that 490 years that we've been talking about has not happened yet. So it was 483 years, pause, we're in this gap and we have not experienced the last seven years yet. The bottom part of the statue, if you've been with us throughout Daniel, if you've been studying it with us for a while, 
If you go back to chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar, our friend Nebi, right, saw this huge statue. The bottom part of that, the toes of the blended clay and iron, we are in those times. So when it talks about the final part of this statue that's going to crumble, we are in those final times. If you go back to chapter seven, the terrifying beast is going to come up sometime in that time after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and whenever. We are in that gap. So verse 27 is talking about the seven years of tribulation. And at the beginning, the Antichrist will make a covenant, a promise with the nation of Israel. Okay? So in the last seven years of, of earth being as we know it right now, in the last seven years, whoever this, this charismatic political leader is, is going to make a deal with the Jews and the Christians. He's going to say, worship however you want. Hey, peace, right? Peace on earth. I'm, I'm, I brought you peace. And everyone will follow this individual. But three and a half years into this covenant, this promise, he's going to break it. And he's going to start heavily persecuting the Jews, heavily persecuting Christians. That's what's going to happen. We know that because that's what the Bible says, that halfway through the week, seven years, halfway through, three and a half years into it, he will break this covenant. He will break this promise. So much so that in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, it says it will cause the abomination that causes desolation. Now, some people look at this as historical things, and don't get me wrong. The temple of God had been desecrated many, many times over the years. We've seen that just in the book of Daniel many times. The temple had been desecrated. But what this is referring to is, is in regards to the atrocious things that the Antichrist will do to not only blaspheme God, but to destroy God's people. If you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, what's going to happen in the future is there will be this charismatic leader who will be so arrogant that he will claim to be God. He will hate the true God. He will claim to be equal to or greater than that God. And because he can't fight with an invisible God, he will take out his rage on God's people. That's what he will do. So if you've been with us in chapter 8, Antichius, another happy fellow we talked about, is a prototype for the Antichrist. This guy came in and did what the Antichrist will, will, will do as well. And then in chapter 9, Titus, Emperor Titus, who really, I think he was only in power for like two years, Emperor Titus came in and he was also a prototype for the Antichrist. He was kind of a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, and it sets up the last evil leader that will rage against the people of God, okay, until Christ returns. Now, what's interesting is, I said we're in this gap, right? And we don't know when that gap's going to come to an end. The time between the cross and the destruction of Jerusalem and the seven years of tribulation is unknown. We don't know where that gap is. And I think that's intentional. I think that's intentional. The reason why I think it's intentional, if we're just going to be honest with each other today, is if we knew exactly the day Jesus was going to come back, we'd live like hell until the day before. Are we honest in here today? Okay. I'm not saying all of us would do that, but a lot of us would. And so I think God in his infinite wisdom knew that if we knew the exact date, we would not have a genuine relationship with him. We would have a relationship with him out of fear of going to hell. And so since we don't know the date, since we don't know it, I think what it does is it pushes us into a genuine relationship with him, that we must be on guard, that we must be ready. We must be like the man on the watchtower looking out, that we must, we must, we must constantly 
be in fellowship and in relationship with God, not so we just have a superficial relationship with him to avoid hell. Listen, if you're in this room because you're afraid of going to hell, you're in here for the wrong reason. We should be in this room because we have a love of Christ, not a fear of Satan. That's not it. So we have to make sure we have the right motives for this. And so again, let's focus on the big picture, the general sense. The point of all the stuff we've talked today is not so we can break a code, right? I remember I went and saw the Da Vinci Code, and then I watched it again when it came out on Netflix, and I was halfway through it, and I'm like, Corey, what are you doing? You know, like, this is, this is ridiculous. Anyone else see the, you, most of you saw the Da Vinci Code once, and you're like, wow, that was a waste of two and a half hours of my life. Anyways, the point is not, did any, no one saw that except for me, right? Okay, anyways. So the point is not to become a cryptologist, right? The point isn't so I can look up Daniel and, you know... <laughs> the ridiculousness of these movies. Well, my gosh, if you move this person in the, in the Da Vinci painting over here, oh, you know, like all this crazy stuff. The point isn't to break down codes in the Bible. The point isn't try to pinpoint the exact day of his return. The point is not breaking codes. That's not it. The point is not cryptology. The point is for us to be Christologists. It's to know the theology of God. It's to know the theology of Jesus. And not so we can just escape damnation, but so we can have a genuine relationship with our Creator. So we can have a genuine relationship with the one that created us, even when times are turbulent. That's the, that's the point. So if you've been confused this morning, I think this helps. Now, I'm not even joking here. I made this for me. I had to like look at it and map it out because I was having a hard time in my head. 70 weeks total, right? 490 years, right? Seven times 70. So the first seven weeks is 49 years, right? 49 years, that's how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem, okay? Seven weeks. The next 62 weeks are the time when Jerusalem was rebuilt to the coming of Jesus, okay? Pretty simple. Now, this is where we are. We're in this gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. So 483 of the 490 years that Daniel talked about have already happened, and we are in this gap. We are on pause right now, if you will, and we don't know when that last seven years is going to take place. Now, look, I'm not one of those crazy people that wants to scare you in like the Lord's coming quickly. You know, I'm not going to like blow a trumpet behind you guys to scare you into salvation or anything like that. I'm not going to do that. It'd be fun, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> But I do want you to see this on this timeline. <laughs> we're closer to the end than we've ever been. I mean, we're growing closer to the end. We're in this gap right now. So it's interesting to think about, maybe we should take this seriously, right? Notice this, though. If you go back and read the entire chapter, ninth chapter of Daniel, about 75% of the chapter is not about prophecy it's about prayer. It's about prayer. The prophecy is no less important. Prophecy is important. We need to see those things. But what I think I got from chapter 9 of the book of Daniel is that my relationship with God is the purpose of the Word of God, not just to warn me that He's coming back. The purpose of reading the Word of God is so my relationship with Him gets better because the Bible is not an escape manual from hell. It's a love story that should inspire the reader to know more about their maker. This isn't a book of fear. 
It's the most liberating text that's ever been put together. Whenever people talk, whenever, whenever um, skeptics or non-believers or people who are just angry tell me about how, how oppressive this book is, I'm like, wait a second, show me, show me. This is the most liberating text. It's still far ahead of its time. It's the most liberating text that's ever been written, the old and the new. And so it's unbelievable. This should inspire us to want to know more about our maker. I was saying last night, it's like if someone walked up to you and they're just like, hey, already talked to your future wife, and she wrote out a 2,000-page book of everything she expects out of you. Would you like that? I'd be like, heck yes. And so God has done that for us. Look, here's everything about me. Here's everything I expect out of you. Here's how to draw closer to me. Here's how to make sure your finances are okay. Here's how to make sure your governments are okay. Here's how to make sure your families and your relationships are okay. Who wouldn't want to read such a book? It's crazy. Okay, so the point is this. And by point, I mean I've got about seven of them, so I should have put points. The first is this. Guys, nothing wrong with reading about the minors. I don't mean that to diminish anything in the word. Nothing wrong with talking about things that we can disagree with. But let's first make sure that we have the majors. Before we start arguing about predestination and free will, are we feeding the poor? Right? Before we start arguing about Calvinism and our Arminianism, before we start arguing with our Episcopalian friends or our Catholic friends or our Baptist friends or our Pentecostal friends, are we clothing the naked? Are we taking care of the widow and orphan? Before we start arguing about minors, are we making sure that we're not goats, as Jesus called them? Are we making sure that we're focusing on the big things? Sometimes I think the church has gotten so lost in the small things that are debatable that we have missed the things that are immovable. Another question, guys, and these are things I asked myself. Am I continually seeking wisdom and knowledge? These are gifts given to us by God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The same Spirit gives a multitude of gifts, and knowledge and wisdom are two of those. Now I ask you, and now all the gifts of the Spirit are there because God wants them to be there, and they're there for His use and for our edification and His edification, right? But when we are praying for God to give us the gifts, give us the gifts of the Spirit, there's not a person in this room who shouldn't be asking for wisdom. If you're a parent, if you're a business owner, if you have influence, if you have affluence, if you have a family, if you have a spouse, if you have a, whatever the case may be, all of you should be praying for God to give you wisdom, supernatural wisdom, supernatural knowledge. Something that I learned this week, and I learned it from this chapter, is that revelation from God only comes when I have a relationship with God. But I only have a relationship with God if I pray. When people say, man, I have a relationship with God, I don't talk to him, but we have a great relationship. I have a great relationship with Alicia. We never talk, but we're awesome. You would laugh at that because it's ridiculous. So whenever we say, yeah, I have a great relationship with God, we never speak, but yeah, it's really, really good. Revelation only comes through relationship. Relationship only comes through prayer. I also asked myself this week, am I... We, I included you in this too. Are we motivated to study the Word of God, not so we can escape damnation, not so we can outsmart 
other denominations or other people around us, not so we can argue with Muslims or, or Buddhists, not, not any of that. Do we study the Scripture in order to have a better relationship with the Lord? That's why we should study the Scripture. Not just in defense of our faith, that's part of it too, but so we can grow closer and more intimate with God. Do we trust the plan of God? This is where Corey struggles. I get wor- Guys, I get worried about a parking lot. You think I'm joking, I'm not. Every week when I come in here and our services are full, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. You guys, well, maybe you do think about how awful our parking lot is, but I'm like, man, people are like parking on, like, on dirt hills out there, you know? But that gives me, guys, I'll be honest with you, that gives me a lot of hope about the future of Christianity. I often ask what would happen if we had to park on mud hills and, you know, it was just crazy and, and, and things weren't, you know, conditions weren't ideal. And you guys have proven to me that, like, you still want to hear the Word of God. That's, that's really encouraging. And sometimes I struggle to trust God. And if you've read our book, Josh and I's book, like, it's just like this great miraculous story about all the crazy things God has done for us. I wrote most of that, and I still don't trust God sometimes. And I struggle with that. So I ask us, do we really trust His plan? Do we really believe that at the end, God is going to win? Do we believe that? And since we know what's coming... Daniel says it. We talked about it today. We know what's coming down the pike, right? We know. We know where we are in that gap. We know that the seven years is coming. We know that evil is going to rise up. We know these things. So the question is, if we know it, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? And so here's a couple of things. I know there's a timeline, and I think it's important to remember that there's a timeline, but just for a second, let's throw the timeline out. Let's not talk about the fact that we're in that gap. Let's ask ourselves, even if the coming of Christ is 2,000 years in the future, right now, because we're not promised tomorrow, and because at the very longest we're only going to live to be 120, the Bible says, do we have a genuine relationship with Jesus? You ever asked yourself that? Yeah. You ever ask yourself that and been honest? Do I have a relationship with God? Do I talk to God like He is my Father? Do I talk to God? Do I have intimacy with the Lord? Do I feel Him? Do I feel Him? When things are, when, when things are going on around me that don't align with God, do I, do I feel that disconnect? Does the Holy Spirit work inside me? Do I have a genuine relationship? with Christ. Do I? Do I? On top of that, have we let the Holy Spirit of Christ transform us? I have people come into my office all the time, and look, they're not wrong. They're doing the right thing. But they'll say, Corey, I'm struggling. Let's just use porn, because that's something a lot of people struggle with. Corey, I struggle with pornography. I threw my laptop away. I took off all the things on my phone. I have all these accountability partners, but I still, I still struggle. Now, look, they've done everything right, and I've taught this church, at least I hope I have, to build up walls in order to protect yourself from sin. But sometimes it just comes down to, have we let the Holy Spirit of God change us? Have we let the Holy Spirit of God change our thinking? Have we let it change our hearts? Has it changed our desires? We have become a Christian community that is too scared to talk about deliverance anymore you guys hear me? Well, if I just go to therapy for the rest of my life, if I just take this pill, if I just take out all these other things, sometimes we just need to believe that God still delivers. 
that in the name of Jesus Christ, we can pray for people and they be set free of bondage. Getting a little charismatic on you guys, right? Well, in the book of Acts, Paul was, someone said preach, so I'm going to do that for a second. Um, (laughs) Paul was walking around in the book of Acts, right? And there was this lady who was possessed with a demon that was following him and making fun of him. Now, we make these movies, right? Like The Exorcist, where people who are possessed by demons spew out green goo and their heads spin around and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's not biblical. But this woman's possessed by a demon. And you know what Paul does? He turns around and he says, demon, come out. Just like that. He didn't throw holy water on her. He didn't chant stuff. He didn't have like a, you know, a big cross on her. None of that. Demon, come out. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the woman was delivered. Now, we read about those stories thinking that those things don't happen today. I'd love to freak some of you guys out by stories that have happened in this church. One day, I'll tell you about the woman who was up here one day. I got a call from a life group. And I came in this back door and this woman had clawed this table up here. Because there was demonic oppression on her. Freaking you guys out, right? It wasn't a long, drawn-out thing. And I can, you can ask some of the people that were in that small group. We sat right up here in this front row, prayed for that woman. Just like that. Turned around, gave me a huge hug. I walked her back to her apartment. Just a completely different person. Not because of Corey, but because God still delivers. Right? And we've forgotten that. Do we let the Spirit transform our minds? Going a little bit further... If we have a relationship with Jesus, if Jesus has transformed our minds, are we building relationships with non-believers? Are we building friendships with people different from us? I hope I don't embarrass the Shabans that are in here, but I've known their family for a long time, Muhammad and Marie, and I saw them the other day in the mall. I saw Muhammad and I saw a bunch of his family. And, and again, this is where I hope I don't embarrass him. All of his family is Muslim except for him that I know of, Right? but I've had good relationships with him. I've eaten dinner in his sister's house before, long before I even knew him. And I see those people like it touches my heart. And so we need to be building relationships with people different from us because guys, if we don't, how will they ever come to know Christ? I know it's, I know it can be dangerous. I know it can be hurtful. I know the world is crazy right now, but we serve a God that asks us to do crazy things. And we need to build relationships with non-believers. We've again distorted the word. Nowhere in the word does it say to not hang out with non-believers. Do you know who the word says not to hang out with? People who call themselves Christians but act like non-believers. Paul said, don't even have dinner with those people. We do that all the time, don't we? We're just being like super real this morning. I'm sorry. And then the last question is this. And I had to ask myself this question. And this is the question I really want us to hang on when we take communion. Are we servants? That word is so big. Are we servants of God? And if we are servants of God, we will naturally be servants of each other. Because the Bible says, how can you love a God that you can't see when you can't even love your brothers and sisters that you can see? Are we servants of God? Do we serve Him? Is our life in servitude to the Lord? And is it in servitude to each other? If I see that you don't have enough to eat, I should do whatever it takes to make sure you have food. I'll end, you, uh, I'll, I'll end with this, and, and I might embarrass this individual. But there's a, a really good friend of my wife who has another friend that, that was just diagnosed with cancer, and it's going to be extremely expensive. And so my wife was telling me that her friend that comes to this church... Um, 
is going to get rid of, I think, her cable and her internet. They're going to get rid of it. And all the money that they would normally spend per month on cable and internet, they're going to give to this family to help them with their medical bills. I got to thinking about that, and I'm like, wow, that's about the most apostolic thing I've heard in a long time. Because in the book of Acts, it says, if you see people that don't have anything, sell your belongings and give it so those people will have what they need. And again, we talk about those things, but rarely do you see it in action. So these people are going to give up a couple of things that, quite frankly, cable's a waste of money anyways. And some of you guys pay two, $300 a month for cable and internet to watch a bunch of garbage that really just feeds your mind crap anyways, Right? So they got rid of it, and then they gave that money to a family that's really going to need that. That's being a servant of God and man. That's going the extra mile. That's really living out your faith. And not for the glory. That's why I didn't say their, end of, that's why I didn't say their name. I don't want them to, to get the glory for that. I want God to get the glory for that. But it's amazing, and it's beautiful. And so I just want you to, to ask yourself when you take communion, am I a servant of God? And if I am... By default, I become a servant of mankind. I become the least of these. I become the bottom, the bottom part of the, uh, the pyramid of the equation. So, would you bow your heads with me, please? Now listen, as we take communion, as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, everyone's welcome to take this. And what I want you to do, if, if you can just do me a favor, is I want you to remember when you take communion what that represents. The communion represents the body of Jesus Christ that was viciously, viciously murdered. The blood represents, or I'm sorry, the, the, the juice represents the blood that came out of his body. And I want, you, I, I want us to remember the lengths that God has gone to for us, the lengths that God has gone to to serve us. Even Jesus said, that he came not to be served, but to serve. And he gave us an example of that by washing his disciples' feet. I want you to understand how big communion is and how big of a deal, what, what that represents. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you repent for your sins. Ask God to forgive you. And while you take that communion, I hope it convicts us to not only serve God, but to serve each other. The, the grace that we've received, I hope it pushes us to give that grace to more people around us. To be more benevolent, to be more loving. Lord Jesus, God, we love you and we thank you. Lord, for everyone in this room, God, I just pray that you speak to our hearts, God. Lord, let us ask ourselves these simple questions that we threw up here on these TV screens today. Lord, let us ask ourselves, do we have a relationship with you? Have you transformed us? Are we building relationships with, with non-believers? And God, are we serving you? Are we serving each other? God, let us ask those things. Let us be honest. Let us be vulnerable. And Lord Jesus, God, let us move closer to you. Let us act, God. Lord, let, let us respond. Father, we love you and we lift you up, God. Give us grace and mercy, Father. We need it, Lord. And I pray that everything we do honors your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. There's people up here to my left. If you need prayer for absolutely anything, to my left, they would love to pray with you.